You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. As we've been doing recently, we want to read through uh, this entire book because it's a, a shorter passage of uh, only 25 verses. We want to read through it together to set the context for where we're going to be over the coming weeks. It says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God, the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the, de- until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet, in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain, and abandoned themselves for the sake of Reese at your love feast, as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars, for whom the gloom of our utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen pray together. God, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for this book. And Father, we recognize that while it is short, um, it has great depths of knowledge and truth and understanding that we need this morning. And so, Father, I pray that you would give that to us today, give it to us over the coming weeks. 
Father, I pray the Holy Spirit would continue to teach us, continue to call us into being the men and women that you desire for us to be. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In your notes, the major theme of this book of Jude is contending for the faith in the face of opposition. Contending for the faith in the face of opposition. We're going to see that what is taught here in the book of Jude is consistent with what we see in other aspects of Scripture, that we contend and fight, maintain and hold on to the traditions of the apostles' teaching that have been passed down to us. So we see this theme running through the New Testament. Different apostles calling uh, the church, calling individuals to maintain this perspective of contending for the faith in the face of opposition. Those that would seek to distort, destroy, deceive the church uh, with their false teaching and doctrine. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, Verse 11, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, fight the good fight of the faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who is his testimony before Pontius Pilate, Uh, made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. So this idea of fighting, hanging on to that which has been passed down uh, to us, we see it in uh, verse 20 of that same chapter. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Paul continues this theme in his second letter to Timothy. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. And which now he has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. For which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until the day What has been entrusted to me? Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. And then the same idea in Philippians chapter 1. This idea of the church contending together for the sake of the gospel. Philippians chapter 1 verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, 
but of your salvation and that from God. Sometimes when we, when we choose a book, people ask, why are we going to study that book next? Why not something else? So I wanted to give you some reasons that we are going to study the book of Jude next. Coming out of Jonah, what leads us to go straight into the book of Jude? Uh, number one in your notes, we are in a battle for our minds, and the only weapon of defense is truth. We are in a battle for our minds. And the only defense that we have is truth. John 8.44 talks about Satan being the father of lies. We know that from the very beginning, Satan was faithful to take God's word and distort it and twist it to lead people astray. He starts it in the Garden of Eden where he takes what God has communicated to Adam and Eve. He twists it. He changes it. He distorts it. He leads them astray into false doctrine, which causes them to fall into sin. Uh, in 2 Thessalonians 2.3, kind of going back to where we were uh, this time last year, um, let no one deceive you any, in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Paul communicated this coming apostasy, this coming rebellion, this coming time of deception when Satan would be very effective in distorting the truth of God's word and leading people astray. And those warnings are throughout Scripture. 1 Timothy 4.1 Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. 2 Timothy 4.3, the same idea. False teachers are coming. Distortion, deception is coming. The church has to be prepared for it. The church has to be ready to fight against it. Satan's greatest attacks come not from those who deny the truth, but from those who twist it. Satan's greatest attacks come from not those who, who deny the truth, but from those who twist it. Think about this. This is true even in our attempts to evangelize. For me, it can be far easier to try to share the gospel with somebody who, who has nothing to do with Christianity, has nothing to do with Christ, than to try to share with somebody who's been deceived about Christ and been deceived about the gospel and been raised on a form of religion but not true religion, who's been raised on an understanding of Christ but not a true understanding of Christ. They're far less willing to embrace a true understanding of Christ than maybe the atheist who has spurred God for his whole life but now is confronted with the gospel, confronted with Jesus, not having to battle maybe false doctrine about Jesus, but is now being presented with Jesus and responds to Christ. It's far more uh, dangerous what Satan tries to do within the church by twisting doctrine than what's going on outside of the church. While attacks from outside the church are only physical and temporary, the deadliest poison spreads inside the church as the casualties are spiritual and the consequences are eternal. Satan can attack the church from the outside. He can bring persecution. And it, it, it's, it's not good. It's painful. It's temporary and it's physical, though. Satan's attacks are far more dangerous when he infiltrates the church with poison. When he begins to deceive and twist and damage the gospel that's been passed down from the, from the apostles. Because now the casualties are not physical casualties, but spiritual casualties. 
It's not temporary pain, it's eternal pain that's a result of these attacks by Satan. Satan has sought to destroy the very foundation of Christ's church through the infiltration of false teachers. This is not a time for tolerance. It's a time for action. We see in the Gospels that Jesus was gentle with the untaught, but he was forceful with the false teachers. Think about that. Jesus interacted with people who who didn't know him and didn't know Yahweh and were not in relationship with Yahweh. But we see a different level of interaction that he has with people who are ignorant and untaught. There's a very loving, compassionate type of interaction that he has. But he shifts in the way that he interacts when he encounters people that are spreading false teaching about his father. It becomes very more forceful and and very much more serious in the way that he interacts with them. Look at Matthew 23, 15. Matthew twenty three fifteen. Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Jesus isn't, isn't playing games here. He's frustrated over the, the effort that these false teachers are, are going to to convert people to their way of thinking. And he admits it becomes harder to, to win them back because of what you have infiltrated into their minds. And as I was reading this, I couldn't help but think about the parallel for us today. We see Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses who go across land and sea to convert people, who work very hard at converting people to their religion. And it becomes very hard for us to come behind their efforts and, and um, speak to these people's hearts and correct their, their incorrect understanding of who Jesus is because of the efforts of these people. And Jesus is frustrated over this. He's angry at this false teaching that these scribes and Pharisees are spreading. We see this type of attitude towards other false teachers in the New Testament. In 1 Timothy 1 Verse 12, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason. That in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. So Paul kind of relive some of his testimony. He says, it's the gospel that saved me that I've entrusted to you, Timothy. By rejecting this gospel, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hermonius and Alexander, who I have handed over to Satan. They may learn not to blaspheme. 
These were individuals who were working against the efforts of Paul. We see them pop up again in 2 Timothy. In 3 John 9-11, through I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us, and not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers, and also stops those who want to, and puts them out of the church. Another individual who was causing strife within the church, Romans 16, 17 through 18. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. 2 Corinthians 11, 12 through 15. And what I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. Again, this echoes Mormons and Jehovah's Witness to me. They disguise themselves as being the same thing as us. They use terminology that belongs to us. They use titles, names for who they are that belongs to us. They assign them those, those things to them. And they disguise themselves as being the same. And they go into people's houses and they distort them with false doctrine. A false Christ, a false way of salvation. Paul hates it and Paul is troubled by it. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. It's passages like this that I need to remind myself when these sweet girls come to our house and want to talk to Lauren and I about the gospel. And they're communicating something completely different. And yet I look at them and I'm like, man, they can't be that far off. They seem righteous. They seem good. They seem genuine. They seem loving. Scripture says it's no wonder Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. It's no surprise if they would appear to be servants of righteousness. Paul doesn't try to beat around the bush here. He exposes it for what it is. Second John, Second John verses 7 and 8. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the Antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. The author of Second John here is, is communicating again. Don't lose what we've worked for. Don't lose what the apostles have passed down to you. Don't be deceived. By these that come with, with false teaching, that deviate from the faith that has been passed down from generation to generation. This is an alarming concern, and this is why we study the book of Jude. Because we are in a battle for our minds now, and even more so in the future, as we get closer to the return of Jesus. Paul communicates to us in First and Second Thessalonians that the deceitfulness will only increase the closer that we get. Secondly, why do we study the book of Jude? Secondly, we are establishing elders in this church. 
And we need godly shepherds, not satanic predators. We are establishing elders in this church. And we need godly shepherds, not satanic predators. The reason we have these false teachings that have sprung up today is because it was tolerated in somebody's church and it wasn't exposed and it wasn't dealt with. As we continue to move forward with establishing elder leadership in this church, we have worked tirelessly to make sure that this is a slow process so that you guys can have faith in the people that we bring before you as your potential leadership, to know that they have been tested, to know that they have been examined, to know that we are not going to quickly elevate people into a position simply because we need increased leadership in our church. Because the war is too great, and we can't afford satanic predators. We have to have godly shepherds. That's an appeal to you as a congregation to study this book in light of the fact that we are establishing elders. It's an appeal to Tyson and Adam who are uh, pursuing the call to eldership in this church. Both congregation and elders have a responsibility to contend for the faith. Number three, we are a small church that must embrace the congregational responsibility of holding to the faith and defending the faith while not running ahead into new doctrine. This is not a task. Now, we, we've talked before, part of the elders' responsibility is to protect this church from false teaching. But all through the New Testament, we see the apostles put the responsibility on the congregation for not tolerating false teaching. That they are to be contending for the faith. They are to be knowledgeable of what's right and what's false so that they can recognize false teaching in their midst. So here's the fact. We are susceptible to people coming into our church that aren't elders that still spread false teaching. It's not just the elders in our church that have a voice. It's people that come into our church that have opportunities to, to infiltrate through small groups, to infiltrate through accountability groups, to infiltrate through our fellowship opportunities that can begin to counsel and provide false teaching. And you as a congregation have to be ready for it and have to be able to expose it when it comes. 2 John 9-11 through says, Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Again, this echoes to me those that would that would come to our doorsteps with additional revelation, additional insight, additional knowledge into the core teachings of the apostles. Specifically, the Mormons that come saying, okay, the New Testament, the Old Testament, those are great, but we've got an additional book that we need to refer you to. Even they come with the, with the mindset, the apostles were great, but we needed a, a new coming of apostles to fix things, to correct things. And I was having a conversation, the last conversation we had, with, with the girls that had come to our house, I told them, I said, the biggest issue that I have with what you're trying to say is that Jesus was the worst church planner possible because you're telling me that his church failed and that his apostles failed. And it wasn't until these new apostles came on the scene thousands of years later that everything got fixed and corrected and made right. It's a complete um, 
undercutting of what the apostles sought to accomplish, the faith that they sought to pass down to try to communicate that there's an additional faith, an additional knowledge that's needed to what they were trying to teach. Second John tells us, do not accept these people. And then number four, we're trying to implement what we learned in Jonah. And people have already beaten us to our territory. Trying to implement what we learned in Jonah and people have already beaten us to our territory. If we're going to be missional, we're going to have to contend for the faith because we're entering a war. The Mormon missionaries that have come to our houses have communicated to me that they are in apartment complexes holding Bible studies with people. So last week we have a group up here that live in apartments brainstorming how are we going to reach our apartments. And the news flashes that there are people that have already figured out how to reach your apartment complexes. And they're already holding Bible studies in your apartment complexes. And they're spreading a false teaching. And so we don't have the time and the, and the, the, we don't have the time and the luxury to sit back and try to figure out how are we going to do this. We have to wake up and recognize that people are already advancing with a false gospel in our territories. The same goes true for our, for our neighborhood. The girls sharing that they had uh, appointments scheduled to come back into our neighborhood to meet with people that were inquisitive about the things that they shared. They've beaten us to our territory. We're talking about how to initiate with these four contacts, our family members, our our hobbies, the places that we work, the places that we live. And we have to recognize that we're not just going in for the for the first time. The people have already beaten us there. We've got to contend. We've got to go in there at war if we're going to see people saved. There's concerns about the book. That we're going to look at as we move forward through the book of Jude. Those are the reasons that we're going to study it. Some of the concerns about the book involve the quotes that come from the Apocrypha and the stories that come from extra biblical sources. It's important to note that these quotes uh, that, that Jude uses in this book are quotes of illustration as opposed to quotes of inspiration. By that I mean he does refer to things that we would not consider scripture, but he doesn't do so on the grounds that they are God's word. Instead, he uses them to expound upon what God's word is. And so while we would use secular illustrations potentially from the pulpit to to bring together ideas that we're trying to communicate, um, Jude chooses to use extra biblical sources to do that. So it shouldn't cause us great concern. We see this in other passages, Acts 17, 28, 1 Corinthians 15, 33. Titus 1.12, these are all incidences where biblical authors cite or quote extra-biblical sources to reinforce what they're trying to teach. In looking at kind of an intro to this book, it's important to note the author and the recipients. Who wrote it? We're, we're, we're grateful and thankful that Jude um, exposes himself at the very beginning of the book so that we know who the author is. It says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ... And brother of James. Jude is the author of this book. And it's widely accepted. Even though there's pages and pages and pages in commentaries about other potential authors. It's widely accepted. And every one of the commentaries that I've looked at finally gets to the conclusion that this is Jude, the half-brother of Jesus. The brother of James who wrote the book of James. Now it would make it easy if Jude would have called himself that. 
If he just simply said, I'm the brother of, of Jesus. But I think as Jude began to pen this book, and I think Jude, after the resurrection, began to realize how inappropriate it would be to refer to his relationship to Jesus as his brother. Um, we see that instead he elevates this position to a, a servant of Jesus Christ. I think the the notion of him being the brother of Jesus is, is completely inadequate, and I think Jude realized that. We also see some humility here in that Jude seems to um, to not even be willing to, to trump his brother James. He He submits himself as the brother of James, and those with... Additional siblings know that the struggle sometimes to live uh, in the shadow of a sibling, and James is far more known. We read through the New Testament, James was uh, the head of the Jerusalem church. He was an important man in the councils of the early church, and so it would have been easy for Jude to be jealous and to try to use this as an opportunity to promote his name. But we see Jude submitting to the fact that I'm the brother of James. You guys know my brother, uh, and, and I'm related to him, and that's how I'm going to identify myself to you as being his brother. Jude was like the rest of Jesus' family in that he didn't believe in the deity and messiahship of Jesus until after the resurrection. In John 7, 5 and Mark 3, 21, we know that Jesus' siblings were critical of who Jesus was claiming to be in his ministry. They didn't believe. They did not believe that Jesus was who he claimed to be. They didn't believe that he was God. They didn't believe that he was the Messiah. They'd grown up with him. He was their brother. So I think that's all the more important for why Jude does not call him his brother, because he now believes him to be something far more than his brother. To call him his brother would be to revert back to what he used to see Jesus as. And that conversion takes place not clearly in Scripture, but we know from um, Acts 1.14 that they are with the apostles praying in the upper room, waiting for the day of Pentecost. 1 Corinthians 9.5 they are grouped in with uh, positive followers of Jesus. And then in 1 Corinthians fifteen seven, we know that the resurrection, Jesus appeared to James. And so at some point after the resurrection, Jude becomes a believer. It's important, too, to note that he calls himself a servant of Jesus Christ. It's a testimony to Jude recognizing and seeing that Jesus is God. And this refutes any false doctrine that the Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses would seek to bring In that Jesus is not God. The title here for servant of Jesus Christ is the same wordage used in the Old Testament for Moses and Joshua when they're called servant of Yahweh. In 2 Kings 18.12 and Joshua 24.29, these were titles reserved for leaders of God's people. They were servants of God. And for Jude, who had grown up as a Jewish boy, would have been educated in the Old Testament. He's resistant to see Jesus as the Messiah, but we have no reason to think that he was an apostate as far as the Jewish religion goes. This is a huge admittance by his brother to now refer to his older brother, Jesus, as, uh, as him now being a servant of Jesus. He's giving him the credibility that only Yahweh had in the Old Testament. It shows that Jesus is God, that Jesus is the revealed Son of God. It's a testimony to the deity of Christ. He goes from an unbeliever to a bondservant. Absolute self-submission to King Jesus. This is going to be contrasted with those throughout the rest of this book who denied Jesus' lordship by the way that they live. So Jude starts off by saying, I'm completely submitted to my brother. 
I'm completely submitted to him because he's the Messiah. He's Lord. He's God. And I'm going to refute those who do not submit to his lordship by the way they live their lives. We don't know exactly who Jude was trying to write to. It does seem to be a Jewish audience based on the extra biblical sources that he uses. They would have been very familiar to a Jewish audience. The purpose for writing. The occasion for writing shifts from celebration over common salvation to a call of defense for the faith. Look what Jude says. He says, a servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James, to those who were called, beloved in God the Father, kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. He says, I had a purpose to write to you. I wanted to celebrate what we share together in the faith. I had these plans to write an unbelievable letter to you guys. And something sounds the alarm for Jude where he changes his whole reason for writing. Some knowledge from these people, their church, Something tunes Jude into the fact that a, a letter celebrating what they, what they hold in common together would not be what these people most needed at that time. And so the occasion for writing is changed. He can't celebrate the gospel that they share if they end up losing the gospel. So he calls them to contend for the faith. One commentator said he put down the harp and took up the trumpet. Instead of the, the musical harp that would have been used to, uh, to celebrate and to enjoy, he has to sound the alarm with a trumpet. His whole purpose for writing has changed. He does not address the specific false teaching in this book. Instead, he highlights their godless lifestyle. These false teachers have cheapened grace and they've embraced a lifestyle of sin. So he doesn't specifically tell us what false teachings he's dealing with, simply that he is addressing the fact that these people claim to be Christians and they live contrary to it. It's important to note that James, his brother, remember, writes the, God, writes the book of James. And we could say that in, in the book of James, good works is evidence of salvation. James is heavy on works. Shows us the proper place and understanding of works, that works flow out of true salvation, that works don't earn our salvation, but that works are a fruit of our salvation. Then Brother Jude comes in and tells us that evil works is evidence of apostasy. So James, good works is evidence of your salvation. Brother Jude says evil works is evidence that you're not saved, that you're an apostate, that you, you may be claimed to hold to the faith, but you've wandered from the faith, showing that you never really had the faith. So there's some consistency in these two brothers in the way they present their truth. Listen to what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says. He says, Christianity cannot be cheapened until it becomes a set of propositions assented to, of acts performed, of shibboleths observed, rather than the vibrant, vital, personal relationship with Jesus which inflames, invigorates, and permeates every aspect of political, social, and personal life. He says if we try to dumb down Christianity to being a set of beliefs that we hold to, or a set of acts that we try to perform, or a set of things that we try to observe, and it doesn't result in a vibrant relationship that impacts every aspect of our life, it's not true Christianity. 
And these people had simplified Christianity to say, we're Christians because we believe this, but it was not affecting the way that they were living their life. It fulfills the warning in 2 Peter 3.3. 3. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. Because in Jude 17 through 18, but you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. Now, it's interesting to note there's a a crazy relationship between Second Peter 3 and Jude. There is all kinds of similarities to the point where you almost aren't sure which one you're reading because they're so similar in what they present. There's a lot of debate, and I spent far too much time last night reading which one came first, Jude or Second Peter. And ultimately, I, I put the books up and said it really doesn't matter. Like, it really doesn't matter. Every commentary concludes, we're not really sure. We can't make a definitive statement. Here's what we maybe think. There's similarities here. We should expect similarities because the Holy Spirit's writing this, right? He's writing through men, and so we would expect that the Holy Spirit would communicate similarities. We see all kinds of similarities in the New Testament teachings. That's what gives us assurance and confidence that it's true teaching. That while it comes from many authors, it comes from one source. Now, I tend to, just in a, in a, in a at-face, at-surface reading, see Second Peter potentially coming first and Jude uh, drawing some from what Second Peter has to say in chapter 3. Jude seems to paint a picture of the here and now, whereas Second Peter seemed to point to the future. Again, there's people that would disagree and say that the, the latter is true, that Jude was written first and Second Peter draws from that. Again, in all the arguments that I read, nothing seemed to really portray why it would make a difference which one did come first. Um, and we'll look at Second Peter 3 more in detail when we go through First and Second Peter uh, starting in the fall. Uh, outline of the book that I want to give you. Number one, call to contend. This is where we're going to wrap up today. Call to contend. Number two, why contend? And number three, how to contend. Number one, call to contend. Number two, why contend? Number three, how to contend. So in verses one through three, Jude calls us to contend for the faith. He, he sounds the alarm. He, he He raises our urgency. He says, we've got to do this. We can't uh, celebrate and sit around and cherish the gospel that we share, we've got to be called to action. Next week, we're going to start to see the why. We're going to delve into the false teaching and the false teachers and the urgency for why he calls us to contend. And then he wraps up the book with giving practical application for the, the how to contend. So he doesn't leave it up to us to interpret and apply how do we contend for the faith. He gives us specifics about how to do that. So let's look at call to contend today. Understanding verses 1 through 3, and we'll walk through this um, rather quickly. Number one, we start off by seeing a lack of fear. A lack of fear. Jude wants to communicate to us up front that there is no ultimate fear because God's sovereign rule reigns. So before he delves into this warning about false teachers and contending for the faith, Jude wants to start off by providing some comfort and encouragement that ultimately, from the big picture perspective, nobody's in danger of losing their salvation. 
No true Christian is in real danger of falling prey to this deception. Now, we've talked before that God uses warnings in Scripture. He uses people in Scripture to make sure that we don't fall away. So while the truth is is that people don't lose their salvation, um, nobody's who, nobody who is a true Christian wanders from the faith. The way that that is ensured, the way that that happens practically is God uses warnings like in the book of Hebrews. He uses individuals and people to call others to perseverance. He tells us to meet together regularly, to hold fast to our confession of hope so that we don't waver in the faith. But the big picture perspective is we're not going to waver in the faith if we truly are Christians because we will yield to those warnings. And so Jude starts off with a matter of encouragement. He says, I'm writing to those who are called, who are beloved in God the Father and are kept for Jesus Christ. He says we are called. It's the idea of being summoned to salvation. It's the idea that our human wills were awakened, that spiritual life was given to us, that as dead sinners we came to life to embrace the gospel by faith because the Holy Spirit summoned us to salvation. It's the, the idea of regeneration. Ephesians 2, 5, we were dead in our sins and we came to life because the Holy Spirit began to work in our hearts and God called us to him. He illuminated our desires. He illuminated our hearts. He changed us from the inside out. We've been called. We've been summoned. And and Jude is writing to people that are genuine Christians, to those who have been called, to those who are beloved. So secondly, we are loved. Scripture tells us that, that God set his love upon us while we were sinners. He loved us at our very worst. And he loves us too much to lose us. Romans 8, 38 and 39 says there's nothing that can separate us from God's love. So God's grace rings true in this passage. That we've been called and that we are loved by God. And we never have to doubt God's love according to Paul. Because God loved us when we were sinners. And so he certainly continues to love us now that we're his children. He loved us at our very worst. And so he continues to love us even when we mess up today as believers. And he loves us far too much to lose any of us. Jesus reiterates that over and over in the Gospels. I will not lose any that the Father has given to me. And Jude assures these people of that up front in this letter. He says we're also kept for Jesus. We are kept. The idea is to maintain. John 6. Verse 35 through 40. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet but I said to you that have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John ten, twenty seven through twenty eight. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. We're kept. We're kept. And we can be thankful that we're kept or we would stray. If it wasn't for for God working perseverance in our life, we would walk away. We would be prone to wander. But it's because we're sealed with the Holy Spirit that we stay in the faith. That we are kept for the day of Jesus Christ. It's all of God's work that we're saved. Now, there's participation on our part. We see this in um, verse 21 of Jude. So Paul tells us up front, 
or Jude tells us up front, I'm talking to those that are called, that are kept. But then in verse 21, he says, you've got a role to play in this. Keep yourselves in the love of God. We do have responsibility in it. One commentator, one commentator said, be in step with God's plans. But remember, it does not rest in your hands. Be in step with God's plans. But remember, it does not rest in your hands. Your ultimate salvation doesn't rest in your ability. But you are called to participate in God's plan for saving you. Be in step with God's plans, but remember it does not rest in your hands. We can also be thankful that we are kept for Jesus, but not kept for judgment, as we're going to see that these false teachers are. He offers a prayer for mercy, peace, and love as well. So he reminds them that they are called, they're beloved, they're kept. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Our peace with God enables us to be at war with these false teachings. Secondly, a sufficient faith. So there's a lack of fear up front. We don't have to worry about loss of salvation. We don't have to worry about ultimate deception. Just like we talked about in First and Second Thessalonians. The apostasy will not work on true believers. The Antichrist will not be successful. The greatest plan of deception will fail. But there's a call to action in the here and now. And we've been given a sufficient faith. The hallmark of Christianity is the apostolic teaching. Acts 2.42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, I'm communicating to you that which was delivered to me. The basics of the gospel that leads to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Christianity is a historical religion that relies on the witness of original hearers and what they passed to us. And God preserved it in the, in the confines of the New Testament. It's a historical religion. It's not some philosophy that was conjured up. The basis of our faith, the apostolic teaching that was so crucial to the early church, is what they witnessed in Jesus Christ. What they witnessed in his life, death, and resurrection. Paul testifies in 1 Corinthians 15. We're talking about real witnesses to a real event that Jesus, a man who was crucified, was raised to life. And that's what we're banking everything on. It's a historical religion that's based on historical events with real witnesses. And it's been passed down to us. The faith we possess is a historical faith that cannot be changed. It was delivered once and for all. 2 Thessalonians 2.15 So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us either by our spoken word or by our letter. 2 Thessalonians 3, 6. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. This denies the need for any additional revelation. I put in my notes, our apostles are greater than the Mormon apostles. Our apostles got it right. They didn't need to be corrected. They didn't need to be fixed. They didn't need people to come after them to, to do better than they did. The apostles witnessed the very things that we must know for our salvation. It's a sufficient faith. Number three, an agonizing call. An agonizing call. This word for contending is the word for agonizing 
The idea here is to contend is to exert full-on effort on something because you deem it worthy of full exertion. To contend is to exert full-on effort towards something because you deem it worthy of full exertion. The question we have to ask ourselves is how much energy are you extending towards this? How much energy are you extending towards the contending for the faith? Titus 1.1 Paul tells Titus about his own exertion in contending for the faith. He says, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness and hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. He says, I do everything for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. Paul tells Titus, I am working tirelessly to make sure that this faith is passed on from this generation to the next. The idea here is a handed down tradition that Jude is talking about. As I wanted to write to you about our commonness in the faith, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. That word delivered, it means handed down. The handed down tradition. Each generation has received it. Now the application for today is different. We've talked about this. The the interpretation is always the same. The application looks different. So the application for today is something that does not stray from the traditional core teachings of the apostles. The traditions have been handed down to us. We're going to see in verses 20 through 23 as we move through this exactly how to, to contend for the faith. We're going to see both an internal approach as we defensively upbuild within the church and then an offensive mission that we're called to take with us. Contending doesn't just mean refuting opponents either. It means establishing truth. So I want to be real careful as we as we get ready to wrap up here. We're not talking about just calling out false teachers and, and hammering Mormons and hammering Jehovah's Witnesses. And when we see them walking the streets, like, go on the offensive and attack. There, there's an aspect of that. There's an aspect where pastors have to call out false teachers from the pulpit. We have to protect you. Because you're going to go into bookstores and you're going to be exposed to false teaching of people that just aren't confined to our church. We're in a new day and age where in these churches they were subjected to false teaching that was pretty much confined to their area. <coughs> you, can be, you can be subjected to false teaching states away now because of our media, because of our, our, our technology. And so there's times where it's appropriate to say, hey, here's false teaching that you've got to be aware of that you can pick up on Amazon right now. But it's not just about refuting opponents. It's about establishing truth. So it's not just about going on the attack against false teachers. It's about establishing truth in your apartment complexes, in your neighborhoods, going on the offensive and making sure that the right teaching is present there and not just the, the attacking of those who are there for other purposes. The question that I want us to kind of ask as we're working through this who are you handing down the faith to? That's part of what contending for the faith is, is that we know it in such a way that we can pass it on to others. 
Who are you handing the faith down to? Who are you working to make sure has a correct understanding of the faith? How are you advancing the faith? I want this study to go right along with what we were talking about in Jonah, because I believe it does. This isn't a, a separate study, let's move on past what we were talking about in Jonah. This is more, how do we apply, how do we do what we've been studying in Jonah? How do we go on the offensive with, with becoming a missional church that is concerned about people? That does advance the gospel. And we're going to see that contending for the faith is that missional perspective. Now, to kind of get our minds thinking about how this is going to look practically, I want us to consider, because here, here's the thing. A lot of us interact with people that are very religious, and we have to determine who are we contending against and who are we contending with? Because we can spend far too much time trying to contend against people that are really with us. And we need to be ready to identify people that do need to be contended against. So I want to kind of get your minds thinking as far as um, doctrinal beliefs, doctrinal differences. Now, we've, we've talked in terms of doctrines of first importance and doctrines of second importance, but I'm going to take it a step further and go with doctrines of third importance. So on your back of your notes, if you want to make a little chart here, I'm going to give you a quiz. I'm going to give you some doctrines, and you tell me which ones they go under. All right, doctrines of first importance. If you don't believe these things, you're not a Christian. Okay, these are these are these are deviances from the historical uh, teaching of the apostles. And, and if you deviate from this, it's every we have every right to call into question your salvation. Okay, doctrines of second importance. These are doctrines that would most likely prevent you from being at sovereign hope. These are, are doctrines that would cause you to need to worship somewhere else. Doesn't mean you're not a Christian. Just means you're not a right Christian, right? Just means that it's a it's a doctrine where there's not full clarity. There's disagreement from people that that trust in the same first important doctrines that we do, but there's disagreement about. Doctrines that would lead us to potentially not be able to worship together. Um, the doctrines of second importance. Doctrines of third importance. These mean you're just not Adam. These are doctrines that we can disagree on within the church. Okay, These are things that I may hold to that you may not hold to. These are doctrines of third importance. There's even less clarity about these issues, and they don't prevent us from worshiping together. They don't prevent, prevent us from doing ministry together. We can, we can coexist. We can rally around the first importance. We can disagree about the third importance, and it's not going to affect anything that we're doing here. And we can move forward with the advancement of the gospel. 
Now, it's important to note the differences of these because as we seek to share the gospel, people like me, I'm working at a school where a hundred plus churches are represented. Which means there's all kinds of doctrines. And I have to sift through and I'm talking to kids which ones are, are worth going after and which ones are, hey, we're probably believers together. And as you're working through uh, trying to minister to people in your neighborhood, you're going to find that people go to church and maybe you didn't know about it. You're going to find that people at your workplace claim to be Christians, go to maybe a different kind of church than what you attend. And so I think it's important that we know the difference between, hey, sound the alarm, this belief is different, versus, hey, you believe differently and that's okay, because we're rallying around doctrines of first importance. All right, so let me give you some doctrines. You write them down where you think they would go. Uh, baptism. Which one would you put it in? Whoa, first. And we're talking about like modes of baptism, like infant baptism, sprinkling. Yeah, it's not it's not a first importance. It's at at worst a second importance, but some would even say third importance here. Um and, and it just depends on how much value you place on it. Um you know we've got some people here who maybe don't fully believe how we believe about baptism. I talked with a couple that visited uh several months ago. We sat in the back and, and they said, Where do you guys stand on infant baptism? And I said, We don't, like we don't baptize infants we're not going to baptize infants and i said but you are welcome to stay here even if you believe that we're never we're never going to um force you and say that you have to be baptized uh from a believer's baptism perspective to be a member here you're not going to have to be um forced to agree with us on this issue we'd love to have you worship here they opted that it was a second importance issue and didn't stay Others would say, it's a third importance issue, I can worship here just fine and, and disagree with you guys about baptism. So that's one that can shift. It's not a first importance issue um, unless somebody is trying to say that baptism is necessary for salvation as though it's a, a work that's tacked on that if it's not there, then you can't be saved. Then it would become a first importance issue. Um, Trinity. It's probably a first importance issue. Um it's probably reflective of the fact that, that there's some real misunderstandings about who Jesus is, who the Holy Spirit is, and, and more than likely you're going to delve into that and find some um, some real misunderstandings about other teachings as well. End times. End times would be third importance. Typically this is not ever going to affect our our ways of worship or the practical living out of our Christian faith. We're going to rally around first importance ideas that Jesus is coming back. We're not going to um, to persecute somebody that believes differently than we believe about the end times. Because just from our study in First and Second Thessalonians, there isn't a full consensus in this room as to how the end times play out. Um, some of you aren't me at the bottom, and so it's a third importance issue, and that's okay. Uh, predestination. I am... I work tirelessly to make it a third importance issue here. There are some churches that would strive to make it a second importance issue, meaning that if, if you don't hold to it, you would be completely comfortable every Sunday in our church. While I've got strong opinions and views on it, I choose to teach the word 
and we don't have to preach systems, and we can teach the sovereignty of God and not um, and not offend people with a doctrine, and yet be very faithful to those doctrines. I believe. Um, so, second, third importance: um, women in leadership. Probably a second in the sense that that does directly affect worship for the most part. Now, if if you're you could be content to say, hey, we're not, you know, I can worship here knowing that we're not going to have women elders. But for most that that are okay with that and, and move towards that, that is a big issue. I'm confronted that with all the time with um with the with the school that I work at. I have to be very careful to dance around that issue because they're women pastors, um, and so that's a very hot topic at our school. Um, but it would kind of fall in the second, third importance. Uh, security of a believer. Ooh. Everybody stop shouting out answers. Well, we're talking about the belief that you can lose your salvation. Which would be more of the um, – I don't want to say straight across the board that Assemblies of God believe this, but I know in my church the, the security of the believer is not taught that, that you can lose your salvation. Yeah. It can potentially be second depending on how it's really defined and understood, but it's most likely more of a first importance issue. if. The, the, the belief is that I can lose my salvation and it's based on a works understanding of salvation, then it's first importance because there's a misunderstanding of the gospel. A lot of people, though, believe you can lose your salvation because they base it on hypothetical situations. What if you have somebody who has been, been claiming to be a Christian and now says they hate Jesus? They lost their salvation. Well, we would just say they never were saved. So sometimes it's a matter of how are you saying it? Like, we're both admitting that that person's not a Christian. These people are saying they're not a Christian because they abandoned the faith. We're saying by abandoning the faith, they never were a Christian. Um, so there may be more agreement there than is originally led on. But for somebody who believes that, hey, if I'm not confessing my sins every night, then I'm potentially going to lose my salvation because my salvation is contingent on those confessions of sins now we're looking at more of a first importance issue because this is gospel related and this is a this is a works based system this is a self righteousness type based system um I wanted to to use this just as a means for you to be thinking through when you're coming in contact with people at work in your neighborhood in your hobbies you're going to encounter people potentially far more than you're not that are religious that have some type of church upbringing, some type of church exposure, some type of doctrinal exposure. And you're going to have to sift through what's worth dealing with and what's not worth dealing with in the advancement of the gospel. And I don't want to get tied up and hung up on, you know, we're, cha- we're saying share the gospel and you're busy trying to convince somebody that, that the rapture is not going to happen and that, they're, that, 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 it's, that, that uh, amillennialism is the correct view. You know, I'd sit with you and say, all right, that's a great topic. Like, but that's not what we're talking about. Like that's not worth fighting over when we're talking about advancing the gospel. And so I want you to be thinking through that because you're going to encounter people that have some type of religious standing and you've got to work through where do they stand on the first importance issues 
So that even like Anna said, hey, this person's claiming to be a Christian, but I want to know what she believes about the gospel so I know if she needs to be dealt the gospel by me. And so you've got to you've got to work through where do they stand on the first importance issues, be willing to let go of some of these other issues. That's more of a discipleship type need as opposed to a gospel salvation need. Um, and so I wanted to kind of use that as a an encouragement to you because you're going to encounter that. Um, and we want to make sure that we're faithful to to handle it in a way that we are calling and contending for the faith that's been passed down by the apostles of first importance, those doctrines that are crucial to our salvation that reflect our true understanding of the gospel, the deity of Jesus, uh, the sufficiency of Scripture, uh, justification by faith alone. Um, those are the things that we've got to hang our hat on, contend for, make sure that the people we're coming in contact with are exposed are exposed to those necessary doctrines for their salvation. All right, I'm going to pray for us, open it up for any questions before we go, if you have any. God, we're thankful that you have given us the opportunity to learn together this morning through your book of Jude. I pray that you would allow today's intro and um, just looking at verses 1 through 3 to set the stage for what you want to teach us over the coming weeks. God, I pray that we would be faithful to contend for the gospel, that we would um, seek to advance the doctrines of first importance. God, that we would be mindful of the gospel uh, we would contend for the faith of the apostles, um, and God, that we would see people saved through the efforts of this church. And uh, God, we pray that you would give us uh, the the mindfulness and the discipline to take advantage of opportunities that we're faced with this week. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.